Welcome to the local podcast. I'm your host, Clay Berkland. My guest today is John Johnson, someone I've admired for years, both personally and professionally. Um, I don't even know where to begin with the titles, John, career banker, team roper, pedigree man, husband, father, grandfather. Is that enough? I think they all fit. They all fit. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, I guess I'd first ask you to go back all the way to the beginning. Tell me where you started, where you came from, and we'll go on from there. Well, you know, my background, I was born on a ranch in Harding County and uh, went to country school for eight years, which I wouldn't give up. I always said I was the smartest kid in my class because I never had anybody else with me until I got to high school. Went to high school in Spearfish because I had to leave home to uh, go to school and I had different places I could go, but I don't know. I really don't know how I selected Spearfish, but that's where I ended up graduating yeah. from. Then I went off to the University of Wyoming, uh, thought I was going to get to play football with no scholarship. My dad said, uh, you better come home where college is a little cheaper. And I ended up at South Dakota State University and graduated from there in 1972. My goal at that time was to get into the ranching business, which just didn't yeah. work. But uh, I had interviewed with U.S. Bank and they'd offered me a job. And so when you're married, have no money in the bank and... Uh, need to start making a living why I went to the uh, went to Minneapolis and interviewed again with US Bank and went to work as a banker sixth grade John Johnson did not dream of growing up to be a banker that, that wasn't the big plan it wasn't actually the plan no I have to say that uh, being a banker has been very rewarding in a lot of different ways uh, yeah I think I struggled for the first four or five years still wanting to probably go back to a ranch, but now I look back and maybe maybe the Lord was good to me and that he let me be a banker for 45 years. Sometimes maybe we're protected from our own decisions. But yeah, that could be. So did you start out in ag lending or were you doing other things initially? Or? Actually, I started out, my title was uh, ag representative and uh, I didn't know where they were going to send me after I interviewed in Minneapolis. And strangely enough, they sent me back to Lemon, South Dakota. First National Bank, almost which was, home. yeah, almost at home, and it was the bank where my grandfather and my father had banked. So that was both good and bad. As a agricultural representative, I had to deal with neighbors that I'd known since I was a kid, and yeah. now I was in a position that uh, I was going to be their banker. So that, that was interesting in itself. But John O'Donnell was the president there, and he was a great mentor. Uh, it was a good training ground. Uh, we always have laughed because my wife, Marilyn, I said she bawled when we had to go to Lemon, South Dakota, and she bawled <laughs> when we had to leave. So so from Lemon, you moved directly to Sturgis then after a while? or uh, I did. Uh, Sturgis, I had been offered several positions with U.S. Bank in different places and uh, had not taken one, and an opportunity came to move to Sturgis. It was National Bank of South Dakota, and uh I kind of made the decision professionally that if I was, I better either take a move or I wasn't going to get offered anymore. So yeah. moved to Sturgis. We moved there in the, in 1977, and uh, Bruce Walker okay. was yeah. the president of the bank. Recognize that name. And he was, uh, he was a tough old bird, an old-time banker, and again, a great mentor and a great place to work and to continue to learn in the banking business. You have experienced this business through a quite a few changes, consolidations, et cetera, and during that time. And then, of course, the 80s were pretty tough on farming and ranching, both in our part of the world. That had to be quite a 
probably a pretty tough time for you, both personally and professionally, I would assume. You know, we, we've gone through ups and downs, as we always do in the ag industry, and it's a good thing that the people that are in it are tough. They make it through, and they figure out a way to survive. But the 80s were different. They were, uh, they were almost devastating. Uh, I became president of the bank in uh, 1984. I was 34 years old, and the only thing that uh, saved me was that I didn't realize that I didn't know enough to uh, run a bank. And so it was a tough time. You were meeting with a lot of good customers that were in financial trouble because of the interest rate changes and the things that had happened in agriculture. And then U.S. Bank made the decision to divest themselves of all their country banks. And so Sturgis, the bank at Sturgis came up for sale. Uh, I met a man named Paul Christen from Huron, and uh, he had the wherewithal that allowed us to buy the bank. And so it turned out that uh, maybe, maybe being as bad as it was, the 80s for us were good. We ended up buying the bank in 1986 and had the opportunity to to go and negotiate deals and accumulate a lot of good customers from Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank because they were basically getting out of the yep. business. Pretty similar story we've heard a handful of times over the years. <laughs> Who were your mentors through that period of time? Were they other bankers or folks that you just knew growing up that would remind you that you could always go back and do what you'd started doing? Or? I, don't, I don't know. I, th I think that one of the things that has always served me well in the banking business is growing up in the ag business and going through blizzards and dry weather and grasshoppers and bad cattle markets and watching your parents kind of suffer through those times and what they have to go through. And it gave me a lot of empathy for the people that I dealt with I wasn't, I wasn't always looking for a way to get out of a loan. I was looking for a way to solve the problem and yeah. allow somebody to stay a customer. And I, I think that background probably had more to do with my success as a banker maybe than anything yeah. else. That's a great answer. So you've served uh, as a mentor to many young ag lenders over the years, uh, kind of by default, myself included, uh, I guess I'm probably not as young as I once was, but I still, still feel that way. What, uh, what have you found most enjoyable about that, and uh, what do you mostly try to influence on young people entering either business, both farming, ranching, banking? I think that uh, one of the things that I, I always tried to impress upon, especially upon my loan officers, was uh, the importance of people. Yeah. The people that you work with and the people that you're working for, which is your customers, so remember that if you don't have customers, you don't have a job, and remain humble. Never put yourself in a position where you try to uh, overuse your authority. Uh, always stay on the level with the customer and try to figure out what's best for them and what's best for the bank and do that at the same time. And I think that's served us served us well. I, I think your background, the same as mine, coming from the ranching industry, has served you well. I always said that you were the best ag lender in western South Dakota that didn't work for me. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that. But I, I have had a lot of good young people that worked for me, and, uh, you know, I just tell them, don't be judgmental. You don't, you don't know where somebody came from, and you don't know where they're going, but try to make it work. So did you try to partner certain lenders with certain customers over time because you thought their personalities would work out better, or did you 
stay out of that some? Oh, no. If you're going to be in a position of responsibility and management, why, there certainly are times that customers don't mesh with certain loan officers. You know, you you have loan officers that are uh, real black and white. Uh, there's right and there's wrong, and and they express themselves that way. And then you have others that uh, can kind of maybe uh, be a little softer in their approach to things. And you have customers that like the black and white. They like yeah. being told exactly how things are. And then you have others that like to maybe have it come a little easier. So, yeah, you always have the situation where you try to make sure that uh, the people that you have working for you are uh, with the right customer to make it work. One of the best chewings out I've ever had by a customer uh, was a very black and white individual. And uh, when she finished, I said, you know, that's the best tail chew and I have ever had. I know exactly where I stand. And she got a big smile on her face and said thanks. And she, to this day, remains one of my most loyal customers. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to be honest with each other. I think customers appreciate honesty. Uh, they don't like surprises, as yeah. nobody does that's in business. But uh, I think honesty honesty and integrity, two things that, that I really impressed upon all of my lenders and the, and the people that work for me is integrity. If you made a decision and you made a commitment, even if tomorrow you wake up and you realize it's wrong, if you made the commitment, you live with it and get on with life and uh, try to make it better down the road. Yeah. But integrity is so important in the lending business that you, you stay true to your values. So after you'd been banking for a while, uh, all of us, uh, we get directed towards some volunteer activities and things of that nature. I know you served on the high school rodeo board of directors for a number of years. I served on the high school board and was the national director from the state of South Dakota for a period of time and uh, gave that position up uh, when my daughter got involved in high school rodeo because some of the decisions might have been one, ones that were a yeah. conflict as long as you had people involved. I, uh, I was very involved with 4-H in the extension board for an extended period of time. Yeah. Served on the hospital board both at Sturgis and uh, Black Hills Wide when it when that changed and was there for 20-some years. Uh, tried to support the organizations that supported me, so I served on the South Dakota Bankers Board and was president there. Uh, one of the most rewarding boards that I've ever served on was the uh, South Dakota Community Foundation, and uh, it's a it's an amazing organization, and it's a board made up of people from all walks of life from all across the state of South Dakota. Okay. And uh, that has grown to the point that it can really do some great things for South Dakota, and uh, that was, that was a re very rewarding. You have a nine-year limitation there, and I served my nine years, yeah. but found that to really be a rewarding board. And what is their objective? I'm, I'm not as familiar as I should be with them, I guess. The South Dakota Community Foundation was uh, actually was started under uh, Governor Mickelson, and it was a uh, it was to raise funds that could be used to support uh, any of the nonprofit organizations across the state of South Dakota. And of course, it started out at ten million dollars, and uh, today we're into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it, it now has enough money that can be awarded on an annual basis that uh, 
you know, that organization can go out and find initiatives that are really important to the state of South Dakota and make a difference. And it's amazing. Uh, South Dakota is one of the most philanthropic states in America. Uh, we don't have a lot of real wealthy people here, but the people that we have in South Dakota will share their wealth, and uh, that's turned out to be a real rewarding thing. I've seen that time and again. We will have benefit auctions locally, and uh, you hope for five or ten thousand dollars, and you end up with twenty-five, forty, or fifty sometimes because people here just support their neighbors and the folks that they know. I think that is one of the great things about living in one of these midwestern or western states is that people still take care of their own. Yeah. They don't expect a handout to make good things happen. They figure out a way to do it, and. Uh, I, th- I think I'm, ju- I'm just glad every day that I live in the state of South Dakota where I do and I deal with the people that I still do on a daily basis. With all those restraints on your time, you still found a way to carve out some opportunity to start reading pedigrees at horse sales and that kind of thing. Uh, can we segue into that just a little bit? Because uh, I think that's probably how we first maybe knew each other is through the horse world somehow. Well, as a, as a kid, I was always... Uh, a little bit horse crazy. I had horses, of course, all my life, and it was an opportunity I had growing up on a ranch. But I also was interested in the the old history, the genetics. In 1972, after I'd moved to Lemon, why Lynn Weizar and myself, we uh, worked some farm sales together, and Lynn was selling at the sale barn, and we had a good friend, Dr. Ron Ford, VET Quarter Horses, and he wanted to have a sale, and at that time there uh, were two gentlemen, Dean Parker and Thane Lancaster. They were kind of legends in the auction business, horse business, and they had a kind of a neat way of doing business where Dean was the auctioneer and Thane did the announcing. And so Dr. Ford said, why don't you guys sell my sale? So we did his sale in 1972, not knowing what we were getting into, and uh, this, this fall, Lynn and I still have a few sales together, and this is the 50th year Dang. that we've sold horse sales together. And in the middle, we've sold horse sales uh, in pretty much every state west of the Mississippi at one time or another, and uh, over 1,000 sales together and over 100,000 horses. So we, uh, we're kind of proud of our, our history in the horse business Dang and right. where we've been. Yeah. Do you even have to tell each other what's going to happen next at this stage? <laughs> no. That's a pretty long marriage for most people, <laughs> let alone a business partnership. <laughs> yeah, and I would tell you that neither one of us probably have, uh, at times, the most pleasant personality. So the fact that we've managed to remain partners probably is a challenge in <laughs> itself. But no, we don't. Uh, we do our thing, and we don't have to uh, talk about what's going to happen anymore. And but we're both getting to the age where uh, we, we need to think about retirement from the auction business as well. So i got to tell you, I had to smile inside a little bit. Of course, I've said it, maybe not all thousand of your sales, but quite a few of them over the years. And I watched you and Lynn work together and was at Butch Webb's sale this fall, which, of course, Seth had to stand in for, for Lynn at. And uh, to see you and Seth work together kind of made me grin just a little bit. Yeah, that was uh, that was a shock on my system. That might be the first time that Lynn has not shown up for an auction. But uh, I walked in that day, and Butch told me that Lynn had COVID and was in the hospital and that uh, Seth was going to be my partner at the sale. And, and uh, Lynn has... You know, Seth had a great mentor in Lynn, and now Seth has gone off, and uh, he's a great auctioneer in his own right. And so 
We managed we managed that okay. So is it fair of me to ask who your favorite stud horse is of all time? Without a doubt, you would have to say Three Bars is yeah. uh, probably the greatest horse. Uh, he was a thoroughbred horse, and the American Quarter Horse Association worked hard to not let him be a registered horse in the industry. But when you look now at the fact that Doc Barr uh, on the cutting horse side uh, is Three Bars bred and... Uh, mm-hmm. And then you look on the other side and you see impressive, uh, probably the greatest halter horse ever was three bars bred. And uh, you just you just look all the way across the industry from the great performance horses to the great halter horses, and three bars is pretty apt to be there. So I'd have to say he's probably the greatest in my mind. There's a school of thought that mares are somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of a colt's quality. Uh, where do you stand in that school? Well, I do think that a mares a lot of times don't get enough credit. Uh, I think the biggest thing with a mare is is that, you know, you get 50% of the genetic package, but then you, you have to realize that that mare's uh, attitude and the way that she raises that colt for that first year of his life is also going to have some impact. So definitely when we come to dispositions, how horses react to things, I think the mare has more of an impact than the stallion does. The thing with a mare is is that, you know, until recently a mare could have one colt a year and a, a very prolific mare might have 12 or 15 colts in her life. Right. Where a stallion... Uh, even back before we got into artificial insemination, could have 50 to 100 colts in a year. So the stallions have a much greater chance of having a more impact in the industry. Right. So the mares get overlooked a little bit, I think. Are you avoiding my question? Or you don't have no, Do you have a favorite mare line? I don't. I don't know that. Uh, I don't. I don't know that. I that I really have a favorite mare line as an individual line of horses. Uh, when we look at the Leo bred mares uh, and what they did when they brought sugar bars into the Bud Warren mm-hmm. program and then look at the, the mares that have a line of Leo that, uh, you know, goes back, uh, I think those mares have probably had as much of an impact as maybe any one individual line. seemed like those mares crossed with a lot of different stallions and yeah. you, you had a lot of performance and, and you had a lot of confirmation. So I, I guess probably uh, I had an old gentleman tell me one time that if you didn't have a line of Leo in your mare's way, you probably shouldn't put them with the stud. But and I don't know if it really goes that far, but that might be the one I would pick. Getting a little hard to find those anymore. Yes, it is. The horse business has changed an awful lot in your fifty years of selling them. What are the in our region? What are the biggest changes you've seen and that you like the most about the directions we've gone? Well, you know, over the 50 years we've been in the business, uh, we were just talking the other day, we've we've had four real big ups and downs in the business when horses were real easy to sell, then difficult, and then grew back to be easy to sell. And I don't think we've ever seen a time in the business like we have over the last couple of years where uh, marketing of horses is relatively easy and prices have increased exponentially amazing uh and part of that is due to the fact that you know 50 years ago we could sell a colt sale in the fall we could sell three and four a weekend and there were a lot of people that had 50 head of mares and they'd have a have a performance colt sale When we really saw that change was when we saw steer calves get to be worth $900, $1,000, $1,200. Why 
40 of the mayors went to town, and they kept the 10 they liked the best yeah. and one stallion. And so those bands of mares were gone, and so the numbers of horses that were available. The other thing that has happened over that period of time is genetics. For a long time, you kept the old mare that you had ridden as a saddle horse, and you liked her, and you kept her daughter, and uh, and then the stud was maybe your neighbor raised him, and you liked the way he was shaped and looked. Yep. And that doesn't that's not the way it is anymore. I mean, we we've got as good a genetics in the here in the Midwest as uh, any place in America. And the thing that really has grown that that I see here in our area is uh, the the cow horse genetics, yep. the Doc Bar, the Peppy Sand Badger, now the Highbrow Cat. We uh, those horses not only work in the cutting horse world. When we cross them back on some good ranch mares, we get horses that are easy to deal with and have a lot of ability. A little softer mind and a little more fun to play with on your time off, right? Certainly, tr- more trainable. You know, I, yeah. I think uh, we, we you very seldom hear about anybody starting colts anymore and having to go for a real serious bronc ride. You yeah. know, that just isn't. Uh, that's not the way they're bred, and and if they're handled right, they're not going to be that way. So during that time frame that you're talking about, we've seen the, the futurity world, especially in the barrel race, and now we're starting to see it in the team rope and the calf rope and the breakaway rope and has started to impact selection of horses for ones that are qualified for those futurities. Uh, have you seen that be a good thing and financially rewarding? I, I think that uh, as, as we've watched things change in the performance horse world, the arena world, uh, the first thing that made a, a huge change was when they put the 4D barrel race in place. Mm-hmm. So everybody could play and had the opportunity to win a check. Then the number system came along in the team roping, yep. and uh, all of a sudden people could continue to rope. They could rope at a young age, and they could continue to rope at an old age, like yep. myself, and continue to be competitive within your number range, and that had a huge impact yep. on horses. Then along came the futurities, and the, the barrel horse industry really as far as performance horses really started that. But now, as we see breakaway roping and the team roping futurities, uh, they're having a huge impact. And the demand for roping horses all of a sudden has taken them almost to the same value as barrel horses. So there are people now that uh, they're going to make their living buying good prospects and making them into performance horses and seasoning them through the futurities and then selling them for a lot of money. And even four or five years ago, a great prospect horse might be worth 5000 yep. to 6500 Those great prospect horses now are worth ten to 20000 yes, So all of a sudden, there's a whole set of marketing that, uh, that is different than we've ever seen before in the industry. So is it good? Yeah, but you got to be willing to play at that level because it's uh, it's going to cost you something to be there. My boy's looking for a horse right now, and he said last night, every time I find a good one, 600 other people have liked it already on Facebook. <laughs> that's the beauty of social media. You can multiply that horse so many times. Well, of course, that's the other thing that uh, the auction business, we were in it, and it was the way that you sold horses. But now with uh, all the social media that's out there and the ability to make good videos and take good pictures and have good explanations. Uh, You you know, you can put a horse out on Facebook and 
in 24 hours you can have two, three, four thousand people look at that yeah. horse if it's in the right spot. Yeah. So the ability to show something to the world now is almost uh, it's it's amazing, and it truly has had an impact on the auction business because so many horses are marketed individually now instead yeah. of coming to the market. And there's an art to presenting them uh, on Facebook and social media. Uh, the pictures you take, the the way they're described, that I, I think maybe you've guided Sammy a little bit that direction. I'm probably jumping ahead there, but she's done an awful good job through her equine promotion site uh, of putting those horses out there for folks, I believe. Yeah, you know, my daughter Sammy started that business kind of as a, almost as a hobby that would make a little money, and it's become a full-time business. I think she understands whether it's the auction sale business or it's selling on Facebook professionalism is so important that things look right, that you represent them honestly, and that uh, you make sure that when people see something, it sparks their interest and it makes them want to know more. And uh, I I think that's, regardless of where you market your horses, uh, professionalism is a real big part of being successful. So I'm going to switch gears on you now. Um, You were an ag lender in western South Dakota for an awful long time, uh, the cow-calf business, that's gone through a lot of changes during your tenure in the, in the industry. Uh, can you give kind of an overview of what you've seen happen there and the direction we're going today? Well, you know, I worry a little bit about the cattle business as a whole. And part of it is due to the fact that uh, the cow-calf raiser, the guy that's there at the grassroots level, we can't get everybody together and on the same track at trying to create good markets for a great product and make sure we're all telling the same story. That worries me probably as much as anything. But you know, there have been huge changes. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, a guy would have an M farm all with a farm hand and they put up loose hay in stacks and they fed it with a grapple fork and they had a two-wheel drive pickup and a new set of chains. And today, uh, and they probably ran 150 cows, and they made a reasonably decent living for their family. Today, we have uh, everybody has a 100 to 150 horsepower front wheel assist tractor uh, with a loader that cost more than the M and the farmhand together, and a new four wheel drive pickup, and uh, they live in a different style, which I don't blame them. I, I think that you deserve to have that if your career or what you decide to do is in the ag business. But it makes our inputs much more costly, yep. and each cow has to produce significantly more dollars in order to pay her way. So uh, takes more cattle, bigger operations, and, uh, and it's harder to be successful unless the market will allow you to have some profitability. And right now, one of the things that, uh, you know, back, we, talk, we talk about back in the 80s and what happened to land prices in the late 70s and the early 80s. Now I look at land prices today that we're paying for grasslands to uh, run a unit, a cow-calf unit, and it scares me a little bit. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe I should be more enthusiastic, but I look at it and say, uh, you know, the market – if the market doesn't stay or get better from where it is, uh, land prices cannot be 
sustained at I, this I level. I think it's inherent in us as lenders to look at the capital structure more than the opportunity structure sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. We, we, have, we have a tendency maybe to uh, try to be optimistic, but that little bit of pessimism always, always comes in. Sometimes we need those customers with the great big ideas to come share them with us so we don't get locked into low-cost structure theory. One of the things that I think is uh, real positive in our area, we went through a period of time when it seemed like all of the producers were getting up in years, and uh, it seems like we have more young people back into the ranching and livestock business coming back in with their parents and uh, getting involved, and young families in the country, and you know, country schools that are still viable. And yeah. uh, that, that to me, is uh, – I'm enthusiastic about that. I think that's really a good thing. In one of my earlier podcasts, I had Billy Clanton on, and we were having that conversation. You know, Harding County specifically has been really fortunate right now. Um, you know, their school population had declined. All of a sudden, we start having young families show back up and be third and fourth generation on, on their families' ranches. And I think the school population is starting to climb a little bit. You're getting the volunteer effort from a new generation of folks, and we're not riding the same horses all day. We're, we're getting some new blood in there to sit on the school board and the Chamber of Commerce and some of those things. And that's one of the, the things I try to celebrate here is the folks like you that take time not just to do their business but to volunteer and help grow your local economy or make sure the school system is in place to, to raise those kids. And that. That's a very positive direction I've seen us be able to take. So uh, all ag lenders get together over a beer once in a while and have funny inspection stories. Do you have any funny inspection stories you can share with me, most memorable ones? Well, I don't know. You know, when I started out as an agricultural representative, that was my one and only job. They purchased me a half-ton pickup and told me that they were way behind on ag inspections, and so I should... uh, We've never been caught up in any... Go st- bank I've ever been in. <laughs> go, go, start, go start making inspections. So that's uh, what I did. And I, and I have to tell you, I was pretty leery of uh, some of the places I had to go and how I was going to be accepted. Over the years, my experience is, is that most people that are in the ag business, a very high percentage are proud to show you what they have. Regardless of whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, they, they're proud to take you around and show you the livestock and show you the place. And, uh, and I, I don't think I was ever uh, one of those guys that had a counter in my pocket and was right. trying to keep track of uh, how many cows and sheep or look at the serial numbers on the machinery. I uh, was more of a ag inspector that went out and looked it over and uh, wrote a report that uh, said it was good, bad, however, and went on about my business. And I have to tell you that I don't think I had yeah, real exciting stories, but I found it to be one of the most rewarding parts of an ag lending job was the days that you could go to the country and actually drink coffee and sit at somebody's table and eat lunch and visit about what was going on. You've seen every kind of gate latch conceivable. I know that from all the inspections I've done over the years. (laughs) You know, I always thought that the inspections were a great place to, uh, I I told my ag lenders, you know, that's a great place to uh, drum up some business if you if you if you go there and uh you know you've got three four hundred cows out there and the old tractor looks like the tires are bald and it it might not make it through the winter it might just be a good thing to uh start a discussion about taking care of those cattle when the weather gets bad maybe we need a new loader tractor or a new pickup or uh so be looking be looking around and uh i think 
the average customer was always grateful if you uh, were trying to figure out what would make their life a little easier. For me, uh, that's probably the biggest change is the front wheel assist tractor. You know, the I graduated from high school in 89, um, and like you say, we had the M tractor with the the comfort cab, which was maybe the most inappropriately named thing ever put on, on a tractor. <laughs> but uh, everybody had 150, 250 cows. was kind of large. And then as we grew operations to meet economies of scale, uh, boy, you got a snowstorm, and that M tractor just wouldn't cut it. But now you can push enough snow with a front-wheel assist. You can feed three, four, 500 head in, in a day and, and still make it work. And it's easier to sleep at night knowing those cows will be fed tomorrow if there is a snowstorm there. And, and as, as a lender, you know, that... That does make you feel good to know that people have the equipment and the wherewithal to kind of get through the good days and the bad days in the ranching business. So what do you miss most about it? You know, without a doubt, I I, uh, I miss the people. I miss my employees yeah. uh, a lot. I, uh, I had the greatest set of employees, I think, uh, that anybody could ever have. They took ownership and they made decisions and they took care of customers and they, they knew I would back them in doing that. And so they weren't afraid to. And I miss my customers a lot. Yeah. I came through the 80s with a lot of people that really did have a, a lot of hardship in their life and a lot of stress. And we made it through and uh, kept those ranches alive. And a lot of those people now are debt-free. And I, I see them, you know, kind of living the, the good life. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I'm happy for them. And I miss doing business with them. So I miss the people. I don't miss the regulations that don't make sense in banking. Uh, and, and people telling you how you have to do your business. Yeah. I was probably, I probably wouldn't make it in banking now. I was, uh, I was a little bit of a, a free thinker, and uh, the decisions I made were my own. And I'm very thankful that I, I worked for a, a gentleman that, uh, that owned the banks uh, that would allow us to do that. And we made mistakes, and we never looked back. You know, he was a very forward thinker, so if mistakes yeah. were made, We'd live with them. They were part of doing business, and uh, tomorrow was a new day, and let's get on with life. Yep. And so that fit my style, and I don't, I don't think that uh, the banking industry will allow you to have that style much anymore. There are days when we wonder if it is possible, but <laughs> we keep fighting the good fight. So what do your days look like now that you're semi-retired? I think you're still busy every day just doing different things. Well, I am. I do stay busy, and people ask me, you know, well, what, what do you do? And I, I guess it's, it's just different. I, I get up early, and I go to bed tired every night. But I'm still involved uh, with some different ranching operations. I'm helping with a couple of major states around the state of South Dakota that have taken quite a lot of time. I still have some young horses and that I've been riding, and my wife tells me this is the last set, that at my age I don't need any more of those. I, I still rope a little bit, team rope a little bit uh, for recreation, and so that takes a little bit of my time. And I have a granddaughter that uh, loves to play golf, so she and I try to play golf once or twice a week through the summer. So I, I do stay busy, and I enjoy what I'm doing. Any other advice you'd have for those of us out here in western South Dakota? Before we sign off, well, I don't, I don't know that I was ever real good at giving advice, but I, I do think that uh, we need to appreciate the fact that we live here, and uh, the opportunities that we have uh, living here in Western South Dakota, and the good people that we deal with. Just take advantage of that, regardless of what business you're in or 
or what your lot in life is, I think uh, some days we don't get up and be thankful enough for what's been given to us. Well, John, thank you very much for being with us here today. Uh, Some good insight, great insight, Um, and I appreciate you very much for what you've done for the banking industry, for farmers and ranchers in western South Dakota, and those of us that have benefited from the volunteerism you've given of your time with uh, from rodeo to the foundation. Uh, All great things. Thank you, John. Thank you. Members FDIC.